Everybody, we are back, and this time we are going to be talking about the zodiacal sign of Gemini. We've been having a bit of technical difficulty, so I hope we come back into Mercury's favor before too long. <laughs> if we're talking about the signs of Gemini in tarot, that means talking about the cards of Gemini. Sorry, the major arcanum is the lovers. That's associated with the zodiacal sign of Gemini. And then, of course, we have the eight, nine, and ten of swords the three decans of Gemini. We'll also be talking, I guess, about the court cards of Gemini, principally the king or knight of swords, but with the shadow decan of the queen of cups. Then we also have, I guess, the ruler of Gemini being Mercury. There's the magician or magus. And finally, the elemental major would be the fool for elemental air. I think that's it. Yep, that's enough. In terms of the technical specs, for Gemini, it is a day or yang or positive, quote unquote, masculine sign in terms of its sect or polarity. It is of the elemental triplicity of air, and it is, in terms of quadruplicity, it's mutable. Uh, and our then, first mutable sign of the our series. Our first mutable sign, yes. Yes, with this, we complete the first uh, cardinal fix, mutable. Yay for mutable, we adapt. And the ruler of... Gemini is, of course, Mercury, and the planet that is in detriment in Gemini is Jupiter. We have no planets in exaltation or fall in Gemini. And I guess one way to think about the opposing dignities of Mercury and Jupiter in Gemini is that Mercury is kind of, you know, small picture, short focus, and Jupiter is the largest possible perspective. Why don't we start... Talking just a little bit about Gemini generally. Yeah, it's um definitely a contrast from both the last sign Taurus and the next sign Cancer, where Taurus, I guess, you know, that's the time of year where the lands are cultivated, you know, in Aries, the lands are discovered in Taurus, the lands are cultivated. And then when that's all done in Gemini time, it's all about going out into the community and uh, exploring and networking discovering yeah. the other. In general, with the sign of Gemini, we think of things kind of bifurcating and splitting and reproducing in that way. And that's a theme that we'll be exploring throughout all of the archetypal imagery associated with the sign. Yeah, I mean, just looking around our natural environment, at least here in the Northern Hemisphere, during Gemini season, you do tend to see a lot of animals pairing off <laughs> you know i see pairs of birds especially which is yeah. i guess appropriate for air sign you know i start seeing two of every kind of bird that comes around right and, and a lot of butterflies which explains why you see butterflies so often on gemini cards that's true and we were talking a little bit on one of the previous episodes about just sort of the way a seed comes up out of the ground and sort of just two leaves and then two more and two more and two more yep. pair by pair yep 
Yeah. The butterfly is actually a good kind of metaphor for a Gemini, the way, a, you know, you watch a butterfly and it flits from flower to flower to flower. And that's sure. kind of part of the, you know, the nature of, of Gemini to kind of go from one thing to another to another to another very yeah. quickly. Yeah, there's a real freedom of motion slash distractedness. <laughs> they're very curious and into uh, all sorts of things, but they're not likely to stick with any one thing for long. Right. What is the motto? Is it I think for Gemini? I think. Yep. Right. And so when we think about the two mercurial signs, Gemini and Virgo, I think that, you know, Gemini is such a linguistic sign. Um, Very. The ability to speak and the ability to persuade uh, all of those kind of language oriented skills. Yes. Right to speak to be a scribe, to build a bridge between two things with words. And to advocate. I mean, tremendous lawyering skills. <laughs> and sales salesmanship. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely some diplomatic and political ability there. Yeah, we see a really prominent Gemini in a lot of politicians' charts, actually. Oratorical skill is really associated with the sign. I think the Gemini is also the ultimate multitasker. I kind of was trying to think of a brief kind of thing. Like, I first I thought of the butterfly, but then I was like, the one man band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got the uh, the big bass drum, and you've got like the cymbals on the fingers, and you've got the, the harmonica. The right? yeah, and- <laughs> <laughs> the roller, the bells. roller skating. No, that's great. Yeah, there's um, endless curiosity, open mindedness. The hunger for knowledge, really, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the word for, the Greek word for Gemini is didymoi, twins, and which really just means two. The, the sound is reduplicated at the beginning. That's all there is to it. It's just there's a doubleness that's uh, associated with this. I think as far as mercurial qualities go, besides the language skill, there's like a delight in trickery as well mm -hmm. i think definite mischievousness yeah you know that what's that line in the orphic hymn there's like that means like delighting in games and and trickery and deceit and that to me is much more um <laughs> well at least in my experience of being a mercurial ruled sign it's more of gemini than those guys than of my end of it uh virgo <laughs> Well, they're definitely word twisters. Yes, games with words, for sure. They're oh. seekers of knowledge, for sure. I mean, that's... Even the symbol of Gemini, I mean, it's two pillars or two people standing next to each other, you know, communicating, exactly. probably. Probably, um, undoubtedly. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, I was just listening to the astrology podcast on Gemini, and one thing that they mentioned was that when you talk about parts of the body, you know, we talked about Aries being the head and um, Taurus being the throat or neck. But when you get to Gemini, it bifurcates. We've got two arms, two the hands. Lungs. Two, long, yeah, two lungs, lungs, two lungs, two arms, shoulders. two hands. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. It's where things become double. And that makes a lot of sense as well. And not only do we double into shoulders and lungs and arms, but then at the end of the arms, there's more branching out at the fingers. Right. That's a real characteristic that sort of um uh fine motor coordination mm. yeah there's definite agility both mentally and probably physically with the sign yes and 
Also, I sometimes wonder if the oracular powers of Mercury, the prophecy powers are, mm-hmm. are in Gemini more than Virgo too. I mean, just sort of like, you know, open your mouth and go. <laughs> Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. The oracular moment, you know, you're not pre thinking what you're saying. You're just letting it come out. Yeah. Children of the voice divine, you know. Mm. (laughs) And also, you know, one one thing that uh, somebody else I read recently mentioned was even though we associate Taurus with the voice and and the throat, you can also kind of look at the glyph of Gemini as, you know, a voice box, a larynx, those two mm. sort of vocal cords in parallel like that. Vibrating just, strings. Yeah, vibrating strings, exactly. And you need the lungs to power the voice, the yes. air, you know. Mm-hmm. Endless supply of hot air. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the other thing about Gemini is they'll try anything once. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Maybe that's a good jumping off point to talk a little bit about the majors associated with Gemini, the lovers specifically, and Mm. the idea that, is it Crowley who says that it used to be called the brothers or might also be called the brothers? Yes. Right. Uh, Because there are double protagonists always in the lovers card. I think he was referring to the Cain and Abel story. Yes. Yes, that's right. To me, I think that's really interesting, whether you're talking about the Cain and Abel myth or the myth of Castor and Pollux or the myth of Adam and Eve. You know, you always have two protagonists, one of whom is distinguished from the other in some notable way. And that's the sort of central conflict of the twins. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's even evident in the older Marseille lovers cards where it was a man deciding between two women a priestess and a harlot yes that's right Uh, one who is appropriate and one who's not (laughs) (laughs) and also you have the sort of um angelic or divine figure both in marseille and in the more modern cards signifying that there's a divine force that's behind the choice or that's overseeing Mm. it or kind of weighting the dice in some way Right. It's Um, definitely all about, you know, dualities for sure, like dividing things into their components, black and white, or opposite sides of things, seeing the other side of things. Seeing both sides of things for sure. Yeah. On the the one hand, there's there's always an argument. (laughs) There's always an argument going on with opposing Although that's kind of a Libra, that's a kind of a Libra saying, on the other hand... But yeah, know, Gemini and, and Libra have that in common. They're both about the the others. Mm-hmm. And about death and choices as well. Um, I think yeah. in all of those myths, there's something about that. One one twin must die. In fact, the sort of progression through the, you know, if you think about the three parts of the sign, when we get to the eight, nine, and ten of swords, you know, it's sort of like in the twin myth, there are two. That's the first point. One of them's different. That's the second point. And the third one is one of them's got to die. <laughs> yeah. Or like if you think about the Eden myth, it's sort of like, here's a choice. You know, I'm giving you a choice. Then you make the choice. Then you accept the consequences. There's something so fateful about that whole story. I mean, in general, I mean, the idea that you can't have it both ways forever. Right. You know, I mean, it's sort of like in the Castor and Pollux myth, 
there's that's the eternal gemini dilemma is yes. they want it every way forever but <laughs> eventually you have to make a choice yeah and i think that's why you know the lovers traditionally is about choice yes it's about the experience you know having a mirror image having a twin soul all of the things that we think about with the subject of love and lovers but it's also about having to choose just one <laughs> 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 like it or not. <laughs> and I also think that, you know, tying it back to the fool, the story of elemental air, you know, the fool's, fool's whole deal is going from ignorance to knowledge. And mm. if you think about the Eden myth in that context, you know, it's, it's really about, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you the choice of whether to know more or not. And guess what you're going to choose? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I I think of that, that uh, scene in in the Lord of the Rings where Mary says to Pippin, why did you look? Why do you always have to look? I don't know. I can't help it. You never can. Why do you always have to look? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And Gemini really is the most, I don't know, kind of airy of air signs in a way. That's even evident because of the, the Hebrew letter is sword and they're, you know, the, the suit right. sign of sword. The air is the sign of reason and their motto is I think. And, you know, they're all about that. Yeah, the mind always comes first. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely mind before body for sure. Yeah, and also the sword, you know, that's the instrument of division. Mm-hmm. If there's a way to split things in two, then the sword of Gemini will do it. Thinking back to the Ace of Swords episode... I think we talked a bit about how the sword is always double-edged. It can cut for good or for bad, you know? Yeah. It's both an instrument of creation and destruction. Maybe we should continue talking a little bit about, since we introduced the idea of the sword, Hebrew letter Zion on the Tree of Life. It's worth mentioning just Kabbalistically that this is the path from the mother to the son, from Bina to Tiferet, from understanding to beauty. And it's also kind of from light to darkness in that sense. Teferet yeah. being the sun and um, Bina being Saturn. So that's a binary in itself. Yeah. Of, and you know, it, light actually, and darkness. Yeah, I, I, I do Hot see cold, that. warm and cold. It really reminds me of kind of the, the concluding st- part of the story of Gemini where, as you see in the writer Wade Smith card, there's sort of like the extreme darkness and the extreme light, that sort of um, polarity. And the way that I think of the end of that sequence is the idea that everything becomes black and white, shades of gray are eliminated, the sort of like illumination of the sun causes you to fall one way or the other, but no longer to see the nuances in between. And the extreme darkness of Binan, this extreme brightness of Tiferet, we can see in that way too. Tiferet also being, you know, the sphere of the sun. In fact, those two paths uh, from Binah to Tiferet and Givora to Tiferet are both airy paths, right? Um, mm-hmm. The path of justice or adjustment and the path of the lovers, that's the, those are the cardinal immutable signs of air so i don't know there's something on that side of the tree that really has to do with these sort of matters of the choices of the mind somehow mm. i don't know 
what I'm getting at with that. But oh, and also the crossing of the abyss, you know, to me, that has some resonance with the idea of the, you know, it's the crossing of dot of knowledge, the desire to know the thing, you know, to just to unveil the thing and to therefore accept what sacrifice you have to make in order to discover it. Look at the difficulty of those cards and the ultimate I guess you could call it ego loss that is really shown in the the 10. It's it's a bit funny that we are talking about in terms of air cards we're talking about this Gemini sequence first because it's the final part of the story really. <laughs> but it just works out that way in terms of the uh chronological sequence. But yeah, the story of the mind is really quite tortured, you know. Um. Yeah, it's, it is. <laughs> I, I always feel bad for Gemini that the three yeah. minor decans. I mean, there's they're they're pretty rough. They're pretty rough the way they're depicted. The eight's not so bad, but the nine mm -hmm. and ten are pretty harsh. Yeah, there's a real emphasis on on the way the mind just ties itself in knots and 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 the way our demons primarily proceed from the mind. So I, I do feel bad for Geminis when they sort of like discover that eight, nine and 10 of swords are associated. But on the other hand, they have the lovers, right? There's you nothing know. like learning that you're born in the decan of cruelty. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. And I think actually, you know, it's worth kind of looking into those decans a little bit more closely, because I think, you know, yeah. maybe we can we can sure. um, figure out a little bit more of what the positive attributes are and, you know, how that relates back to the lovers. All three decans, to me, really reflect that desire of uh, Gemini to search and to hunt and to look for things and to not kind of give up till you find the thing that you're curious about. Right, um, to explore. The Eight of Swords is probably the least... <laughs> scary of them i guess yeah it's because of jupiter it gives it a little something helpful I guess and it's so. a double mercury <laughs> yes it's a double mercury in, ten in terms of uh it being an eight so cabalistically um it is mercurial and also ruled by gemini so which is ruled by mercury so that's how it's um, double in nature. As far as the deck and imagery, the eight of swords really has that, those qualities of, of numerical skill, you know, of, um, perceiving yeah, the, the double mistress of things. stitching thing. Yeah. Yeah. And also, and then also like, the, um, you know, association with the sciences, writing the computation and, writing. and number. Yeah. I think that math skills really come up in this card. Also, arts in which there is no profit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the understanding of the numbers, but not necessarily the gain from them. So, you know, you have the mercurial skill with the counting, but not necessarily the Jupiterian, because Jupiter is in detriment here, you know, the Jupiterian cash on hand thing. The mistress of stitching, so it's really a, a focus and attention on what you have to do to to put together two things recognizing what's double about them and also piercing them with the world's tiniest sword <laughs> <laughs> the paralysis of the eight of swords really has to do with that like there's too many interesting things to pursue too many wormholes yeah definitely one thing that's worth noticing that we'll see in all of the eight nine and ten is that there's both feminine and masculine imagery in them you know, we talked about the woman sewing in 
in the Picatrix image, but in Agrippa, there's a man in whose hand is a rod. A rod. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know. But, you know, that's a unit of measurement. Yes, that's true. And he is, as it were, (laughs) serving another. I don't even know what to make of that. You know, I I, I haven't looked at the original Latin for that. I probably should uh, to see what Agrippa was getting out of the Latin version of the Picatrix. (laughs) Uh, The significations are the same as as the Arabic Picatrix um, ones, the um, thing about writing a number. The other thing about the Arabic Picatrix image is two calves and two horses, right? So it's like two by two. Mm-hmm. When people are thinking about the Eight of Swords and kind of, you know, if that's your birth decan or you have a prominent placement there, the upside is that there's real skills. There's real exploratory, curious, open-minded learning to be had there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the, the downside is getting stuck, being frustrated by the overabundance of stimuli. And then if we talk about the nine of swords i guess there's the iron helmet and the silk there's a sort of you know masculine versus feminine imagery in there sorry a man whose face is like an eagle and his head is covered by linen cloth clothed and protected by a coat of leaden mail on his head is an iron helmet about which is a silk crown i don't even know what a silk crown looks like and in his hand he has a bow and arrows the other one is a man in whose hand is a pipe another being bowed down digging the earth so um and there's i guess the signification would be oppression evils and subtlety or infamous and dishonest agility as that of jesters and jugglers, also labors and painful searching. Those are two different aspects, I think, we're talking about. Mm. One being sort of like the play with words that we've talked about, the sort of trickster energy, and the other being sort of the quest, the hunt, the sort of like, I'm going to get the thing I want. I'm going to seek it out. Reminds me a little bit of that scene of fighting and hunting that's on the bed of the Nine of Swords in Rider-Waite-Smith. You know, sort of just in the lower left-hand corner, there's that thing, which is actually supposed to be Cain and Abel, I think, beating each other up. Mm. I think that the agonizing sort of aspect of the Nine of Swords, that sort of like what they're doing with their hands over their face, is that recognition that, you can't have it both ways. The decision to take the bite out of the apple. When you, when anybody makes a decision, there's always a moment that is the painful recognition that you're giving something up. The cruelty of having to make up your mind. The final decan being the decan of ruin. The man clothed in mail with a bow, arrows, and quiver But then the Agrippa one is a man seeking for arms and a fool holding in the right hand a bird and in his left a pipe. So so again, this sort of like ambiguous imagery. He's certainly a fighter of some sort, but also kind of like having fun with it. Kind of a happy warrior type. Yeah, the fool thing. I mean, Crowley calls this 10 card a deterioration of the mental faculties. Yeah. As the sword suit is, you know, dissipating. So, you know, the fact that he's a fool holding yes. a bird and a pipe. Both both birds and pipes are associated with air, I guess you could say. And seeking yeah. for arms is definitely a sign of some sort of conflict. 
the significations are audacity, honesty, division of labor, and consolation, forgetfulness, wrath, boldness, jest, scurrilities, and unprofitable words. And to me, that really reminds me of like, uh, sometimes on social media, you'll see flame wars, you'll see people just, you know, letting loose on Twitter, that whole sort of, I'm just going to say whatever now, because you're not a real person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. There's a malice and a, and a delight that goes with that, which I think we have to face is part of that experience, you know, a loss of humanity. Mm. And that's, part of the death implied in the card, the sort of like, I don't see you as a human person, the person that you're abusing, verbally abusing. And to me, that's sometimes something you see in the mercurial archetype, you know, a sort of like, well, you know, I'm not really thinking about whether it hurts you. It's funny, you know? <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Which is going to be a real contrast, I think, with or maybe why, maybe why in the next sign we'll see a lot about the long memory and the holding of the grudges. hurt feelings. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, the Ten of Swords, there's something in it about, well, it's the one twin must die thing, but it's also the sort of division of that doubleness into one who survives and one who's the victim. That conflictual nature comes out in that final stage yeah and because it's ruled by the sun the deccan is ruled by the sun yet it's a 10 which is associated with saturn again you have that kind of almost mm -hmm. death of the sun theme and that's kind of echoed by that it was the last deccan of the zodiac to the egyptians anyway right the new year began with cancer one exactly and another thing that i kind of forgot to touch upon with the lover's card is that idea of analysis, breaking things down versus synthesis, putting them back together. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's the work of Gemini or something we've that's also implied in the lover's card is to break things into pieces, eventually to be brought together in the temperance or art card. That's the nature of the hermetic marriage. But first, you have to split things apart. Oh, and Gemini and Sagittarius, you know, polar opposites. Mm -hmm. axial opposites and also the idea that there's kind of you know archery themes in both right you mm -hmm. know when in gemini we have kind of the the foreshadowing of the archer archetype of sagittarius in the eros or cupid figure it's also interesting that castor and pollux kind of embody the whole not just Gemini, but the Gemini-Sagittarius axis in that the, the mortal one, Castor, was a horse trainer. So that's oh, yeah, right. very Sagittarian. Well, the immortal Pollux was a boxer. That's the hands. The you hands. Know, the, the gem <laughs> more Gemini. So the, you know what I mean? Right. And pugilism for sport. Right. Verbal sparring, if nothing else. Yes. As far as myths goes for the Decanic Miners, I really like the one just for Gemini in general, in a way, the one I chose for in the book for the eight, mm -hmm. which is Mercury as a youth when he was first born to his father Zeus and all the mischievous things he got into. To me, that really shows the nature. I mean, not only is it appropriate for that Deccan because it brings in Zeus, Jupiter, as his father, but Mercury as a child not only got himself into a lot of trouble, but also was already inventing and, and exploring, mm -hmm. you know, lots of things. He needed to keep busy. <laughs> oh, yes, for sure. And this does sort of hark back to that idea of Mercury the thief, definitely associated yeah, with Yeah, I mean, on his first yeah. day, he stole his brother Apollo's cattle and 
sacrificed one to the gods and, of course, divided it into 12 parts, even though formerly there were only 11 because he said, I'm, I'm one now. Yes, yes. <laughs> gave, which was gave himself a part. And uh, in order to do that, you know, he invented the he discovered fire and invented the bow drill that to start the fire. And, and the liar. Same day. <laughs> yeah. And composed a hymn to himself. <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, yeah. Zeus knew that he had to keep this kid out of trouble, so that's when he put him in charge of ferrying souls to the underworld because he figured that would keep him busy because that was happening every day. Yes, there's a there's a working that you can do in the first decan of Gemini where you do the image of a handsome young man, left hand with a rod. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a, a rod with like the serpent twined about it so there's more mercur mercurial mercury, yep. imagery and in the right hand a dart this is something really interesting about these magical images in Agrippa it's like there's often a dart so that you can direct the energy I guess of the planet mm. down to earth um, they're often carrying a dart in one hand anyway and the purpose of that working is for knowledge eloquence diligence and uh, success in merchandising uh, so these are all sort of skills associated with Mercury. So you would want to have Mercury in Gemini 1 and on the Ascendant, which you can probably only do at one time of year each year. Uh, well, while we're talking about the magical parts, we could also mention the weapons and powers. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. So, so the magical weapon, the tripod, that's interesting because when I think of the tripod, I think of the oracle at... Delphi, and then it brings yeah. in that whole Children of the Voice, Oracle of the Gods kind of thing. Oh, good point. The tripod uh, that's fuming, hallucinatory drugs. <laughs> right, or that suspended the Oracle over the yes. crack in the earth that was releasing these things. <laughs> yes, yes, whatever these they fumes. were. Yes, what a job, man. And then the uh, the magical powers are great. Yeah, power of being in two or more places at once. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and of prophecy and of prophecy you know that again that's a that's something that Sagittarius and Gemini have in common is that they're both associated with prophets and prophecy yes and you know I was thinking about that at first they seem like two very separate skills the skill of bilocation and the skill of prophecy but in a sense they're not because that is divination having one foot in both worlds you know Right. And, you know, two places at once, it doesn't necessarily have to be physical. What if it's two times? Yeah. Maybe you can be in the future and the present at the same time. Yeah. Just to go back to the myths. So you were talking about Castor and Pollux. Uh, yeah. Well, the, you know, the, that's the, the constellation Gemini mm -hmm. supposedly is right. the the alpha and beta stars are Castor and, and Pollux. Or, you know, in Egyptian times, I think they were seen as... Uh, sprouting plants um yes that's right and the, the syrians saw them as two separate twins called uh, nilos and hazmet which were their mercury figures and also the uh, solar and lunar archetype mm -hmm. so another like binary that's right and the thing is that like not only in the greek myth were these two twins born but also the, another set of twins helen and clytemnestris so this mm -hmm. is the story of alita uh, and the swan zeus comes to her in swan form like he does. And she gives birth to two eggs out of one hatching Castor and Pollux and the right. other Helen. Yeah, so two sets of twins. That's pretty good. Exactly. All of which caused trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And weren't Castor and Pollux also 
they were wind gods in terms of like they were gods of of seafarers of sailors protectors of sailors yeah the Dioscuri. There's a myth of a character named Simonides who was um, a huge fan of Castor and Pollux. And he had a patron named Scopas. And Scopas won some chariot race. And so Simonides praises Castor and Pollux for helping Scopas because they were, you know, I think it was, was it uh, Castor who was the horseman? Yes. So while they're celebrating this victory, Simonides is rebuked by his boss. And then while they're in the banquet hall, he gets a note from a messenger saying there are two young men who wish to speak to him. So he goes to the door and. Oh, that, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, this one. Just as he's left, the roof falls in and crushes all the guests and, yes. and the boss because of their insult to the two young men who were, of course, Castor and Pollux, but Simonides himself for his loyalty and veneration of those two was saved. There's definitely, you know, something in there about, well, first of all, not messing with the gods, <laughs> but also the way loyalty is rewarded and, you know, and the and the amorality of, of Mercury at some level. You don't talk nicely about me, I'm just gonna... I can't really remember, but I also think there's something in that myth about the memory palace technique. The memory palace is associated with the wedding guests, um, mm-hmm. uh, with remembering everyone who was at the the, yes. the wedding feast. Um, and I, I I can't remember what that was. Um, well, it still kind of fits for the whole Mercury, you know, mind abilities. Memory palace technique is kind of very versatile technique for committing multiple things and strings of things right memory yeah hold on a sec yeah so it was cicero talking about simonides he was commissioned okay so i'm i'm seeing a quote here simonides was commissioned to recite a poem praising a group of nobles at a banquet and after the recitation he left the hall and the edifice collapsed and killed all the people. The bodies were so badly mangled, no one could identify them. But Simonides was able to identify each based on their location. So that's yes. the origin of the memory palace technique. That yes. makes that makes so much sense. Very mercurial story. The constellation of Castor and Pollux is very easy to identify, unlike many. <laughs> it does look like two you know, sort of linear stick figures in the sky. Um, is Castor the alpha star? Yeah, that's that's something that's interesting. Um, Castor is the alpha star, but it's actually like a little cluster of half a dozen stars. Mm. And so the brightest star, or the lucida, you would call it, of the constellation is actually the beta star, Pollux, which is mm. kind of interesting since he was the immortal of the two. So in terms of the story of... Th- the mortal and immortal relationship of Castor and Pollux. I guess what happened was that uh, the mortal one was killed in battle and the immortal one was mournful. So, and asked Zeus to allow him to share his immortality. So they split up the year half beneath the earth and the underworld and half in the skies Mm. as the constellation. Okay. We should probably go through correspondences. Yeah, Sure. Well, we already talked about about parts of the body. Yeah. um, And Picatrix makes a point of like tall everything, like tall, skinny trees, places that are high up, cultivated places in mountains. 
tastes that are sweet. Let's see. Oh, and airy smells. So airy smells are like, you know. um, Lavender. Lavender, for sure. Bay leaf. Mastic is one of them. That's not particularly airy, but but there you go. Orchids. Lily of the Valley was another I saw. Mm -hmm. So those kind of flowering plants that bloom in the air that seem to almost defy gravity. I was looking in uh, 777 and I thought the animals were pretty good. It was the magpie and hybrids. Yes, hybrid (laughs) animals. (laughs) That's right. But I also think of the monkey as kind of qualifying too. I think so too because of the whole mercurial. Curious uh, George. Kind of thing. And also um, nut trees, which... Uh, you know, that's that's kind of interesting to me because on the one hand, it's like the seed, the dissemination of the seed. But also, if you think of like an almond tree in bloom, they have that very airy sort of cloud of mm. flowers kind of thing yep. going on. And then the, the stones are mixed stones like agate. Um, yep. Alexandrite, which changes colors depending on the lighting, which that's kind of cool mercurial thing. And tourmaline, which also, you know, you see in... Many different colors. There's green tourmaline and red tourmaline and blue tourmaline. And, you know, yeah, sometimes yeah. there's there's watermelon tourmaline, which is both red and green in the same <laughs> stone, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. And so I've always sort of like, Black you know, tourmaline. can't always get the stones that I want to for, for the altar for Mercury, but kind of any mixed stone will do, you know, that has mm. different composites inside it. It's interesting. Yeah. Plaid. Plaid. <laughs> Yeah, it's like if you can't find something to wear to honor Mercury in orange, just wear something. Madras. Glad. <laughs> oh, I got one more weird okay. thing yeah. in 777. The vegetable drug for Gemini mm-hmm. is watercress. I, I, did, I wasn't aware huh. of watercress having any type of magical, mystical, no. yeah, that's uh, hallucinatory drug-like powers. Are you? Were you? <laughs> no, 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 not at Maybe all. Maybe if you I'm... smoke it. <laughs> <laughs> Nutmeg. Certainly, but um, but yeah, like watercress, you know, it's peppery, which seems martial, and it's watery, which seems like I don't know, lunar or something. Yeah, yeah, weird, weird, huh? Weird. And then uh, I also saw for vegetables, not vegetable drugs, but which mm-hmm. I thought was definitely mercury, like peas, like peas in a pod and oh, beans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, multitude of fruit right. on the bush. <laughs> right, the ones that come in sets. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we didn't mention the colors. Which, oh, um, colors, right, yeah. Which I guess we should just mention real yeah. quick. Um, mm-hmm. I think in the Lovers episode we did way back when, I called them the Dunkin' Donuts colors. <laughs> <laughs> Orange, pale mauve, new yellow leather, and reddish gray inclined to mauve. It's a kind of a joke to me to call them the Dunkin' Donuts colors because A, they are, and B, Gemini, you know, is associated with fast Fast yes. talking associated with drinking lots of caffeine. <laughs> Plus, you know, Dunkin' Donuts, you can Mental get in and alertness. out of there really fast. <laughs> right. And also, I think of the new yellow leather color that they mentioned. I know that's just the name of the paints that they, Windsor and uh, yep. Newton paints yep. they were using. But it makes me think of those work gloves, the work you glove. know, with, that goes over the hands of Gemini. Yeah, so, I like that too. Yeah. So the geomantic figure for Gemini is Albus, which of course means white. It's kind of opposed to Rubeus uh, red. It kind of looks like an upright cup with a with a base. So there's like mm-hmm. a base and then like the, a chalice. Yeah, like a chalice. And it's it's one of those sort of weakly favorable figures. You know, it's supposed to be fairly detached, which seems airy and Gemini like mm-hmm. in that sense. It's a figure of an old 
old man kind of go- goes with it. But there's also the possibility of over detachment. So as I say, weakly favorable. I'm not, I don't do geomancy much. Do you? Not, not often. Once in a blue moon. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't have a really great feeling for it, but, um, but that kind of makes sense in terms of the airiness of the figure. Yeah. Okay. Should we do a quick, uh, hit of the court cards? Uh, we're talking about king or knight of swords, eight for his decans being the eight of swords and the nine of swords and the shadow decan being the seven of pentacles or discs. We talked a little bit about that sort of, uh, being intolerant of failure. But also the eight of swords and the nine of swords, he's got that ability to split things up and discriminate. The There's not a lot of sentiment right. there with this right. guy. It's a, it's black and white, you know. The ability to be a judge, uh, to give a final decision, I think is uh, perhaps an attribute of his sword that divides things into black and white. The Also the high perspective, we've talked about sort of tall trees and mountains and the, mm. the king of swords and the knight of swords and thought, you know, they both are high up. Right, the king. Of yeah, he's got that mountain. beanie on his head that looks like a propeller, and the knight of swords is literally with the with the cardinal the direction, air. with the directions of the compass on it, and then he's you know he's pointing towards the air direction, which is kind of cool. Yeah, but it, yeah. it's kind of shows that he has to pick a direction and and head that way. Right, all and possible he could go choices. And, I definitely think of that Thoth knight as being kind of the helicopter, the copter knight, because yes. you know, because he hovers in the air. He's got that beanie, and he literally, unlike an airplane, which is harder to change direction, a helicopter is known for its like ability to go in any direction on the essentially turning on a dime. And then the the final deck in the Ten of Swords uh, is the Queen of Cups, and it's that interesting juxtaposition of of the ruin of the Ten of Swords and the Two of Cups love, you know, the idea that once you have uh, sort of laid waste to everything with the overactive use of the mind, it's destructive power. Right. The What's only next remedy, but feelings? Exactly. The only remedy is in the heart. Talk and it's almost, a, there's kind of a reincarnation theme there in that the Ten of Swords is sometimes associated with endings and deaths and the Two of Cups is sometimes associated with birth. Yeah, I, I mean, I think in tens in, in general, we, we find that to be the case. And it, that's actually interesting that all queens bridge that, that sort of, uh, rebirth of the world. Yes. Ten yeah. to two thing. Um, and, uh, the other thing is that, you know, King's Knights associated with two, the doubleness. Mm hmm. Um, but particularly this one because of its association with Gemini. All right. Shall we try to sum it up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, lots and lots of themes of Gemini here. We talked about the sort of the, the splitting of attention in multiple directions, which causes both multitasking skills and distraction. Uh, the, the emphasis on thinking and language, argument and advocacy. Right. The, the one man, one man band and multitasking. <laughs> yes. Yes. The, Children of the Voice Divine. Being in two places at once. Bifurcation and bilocation. Uh, the the swords of air. Uh, the twins. The many, many myths of twins. Yep. Networking and exploring the community. Mm-hmm. Delight in language. And to some extent, um, the the ability to use it in in painful and cutting ways, um, not just 
not just defensive or um, protective ways. Diplomatic or political or word twisting doublespeak aspect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure. The uh, the miners uh, being, I don't think we mentioned their names, uh, the miners of interference or shortened force, cruelty or cruelty and despair and ruin. The hermaphroditic doubleness of Mercury, I guess, is sort of in there too. The, mm-hmm. the Deccan imagery having both male and female qualities, double protagonists. Endings and beginnings, light and darkness, mortality and immortality. Yeah, one twin must die. I have a good quote we can end with from a Gemini, Walt Whitman. Mm, No kidding. Do I contradict myself? I contain (laughs) multitudes. Oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. I did not realize he was a Gemini. That's great. Song of myself. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that does it for Gemini. Thank you for looking at both sides of this sign with us. every possible perspective, as scattershot as it was. We will be back next time with the sign of cancer. See you then.